My name is Zach. For those of you that, are, that don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this Labor Day weekend Sunday. We've got school started up. We have football, uh, college football started up. We've got some fans. We've got pro football on the way. And we have our first holiday of the fall, which is exciting. Uh, now, <clears throat> question for you. I want to hear your thoughts, or you can talk out loud if you would like, or you can just talk in your head if you want to. Uh, I think that Labor Day might be the most confused holiday that we have. I mean, other than how did the bunny get associated with Easter, that I still don't know. But other than that, Labor Day comes around and everyone's like, wait, is it, is it Labor Day or is it Memorial Day? Is it... Which one comes, like we know one of them is at the start of the summer, one of them is at the end of the summer, but which is which, who knows. So I want to fill in the gap for you. I was like, where did we get Labor Day? Where did it come from? I'm going to tell you the story behind it. It's actually an old holiday. Like some of the holidays we have now, like National Sibling Day or National Donut Day or National Appreciate the Bald Men in Your Life Day. Like, where did those come from? Did people just make them up and kind of put them out on social media? I don't know, although that last one is a great idea. Labor Day actually is over 100 years old. Yeah. In the uh, mid-1800s in America, the Industrial Revolution uh, was sweeping through America, which meant people were going primarily from uh, working on the farm, kind of having an, an, a, a agriculture as the center of their lifestyle, to working in factories, to working in various industries, to working in shops and mines and that sort of thing. And so our, our nation was shifting. And as the nation shifted from kind of one means of living, one common trade, to a very different way of living, uh, there was a big learning curve going on. And one of the things that was very common was if you were not one of the, the few elite and you worked in a factory, it meant that you were going to work six to seven days a week, 12 hours a day, just to scrape by. And back then, it was okay to employ even children. We have our kids in the service today. Uh, if you were five years old, as young as five years old, you could be hired to work in a factory, and you would have to work 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, day in, day out, year in, year out. Many children were used to work in mines, coal mines, where you're down in the, underneath the earth in terrible conditions. If you were poor, if you were an immigrant, if you didn't come from a wealthy family, the conditions for you were even worse. And so there was this unrest going on as these workers were saying, hey, there must be more to life than me being a cog in the machine and just day in, day out, working on the assembly line, week in, week out, year in, year out, just barely getting by. And so workers rallied together, and they formed what we call unions. They said, hey, we're going to come together, and we're going to fight for our rights. The Beastie Boys weren't the first to fight for their rights. People came together and said, hey, we're going to fight for our rights for labor. And so they began to protest against the bosses, against the powers at B., and so the first Labor Day that was taken was in New York City. The year is 1882. I believe we have a picture of it. And uh, the workers, 10,000 workers, decided that they were not going to work that day. And they were going to take to the streets in protest of labor conditions everywhere. So just imagine if you're in school, if you're a student in here, imagine if tomorrow your whole school, all the kids in the school got together and said, you know what, we're sick and tired of homework, we're going to protest, none of us are going to show up at school. I get some claps in the middle there, thank you. Right, that kind of deal. They just said, we're protesting 10,000 people came together, didn't show up at their job to stand up for their rights. That's amazing. Well, that was the first Labor Day, and it kind of began to catch on uh, in different places to, to take this first Monday in September as kind of a statement about the value of work. And it began to be popular in various cities, but it wasn't a national holiday until 1894 
after 12 years of people doing it kind of at a grassroots level, there was a, a big riot in Chicago, again, of workers coming together and rioting against the owners of the companies and even against the police. And so there was this battle between police and protesters, which resulted in several people being killed, and the U.S. government was trying to figure out how do we make everyone happy. And so they declared Labor Day to be a national holiday. President Grover Cleveland, don't know the last time you thought about old Grover, uh, Grover made it a national holiday, but it was a sign and a symbol of the dignity that America was to find, not just in people who are at the top of the food chain, but in the workers of America. And so it went with a number of other reforms, trying to reform and give workers more rights and more value. And so we celebrate Labor Day to remember the value of hard work, to remember the value of working and the dignity of work, but also the need to rest from our work. So it's not just the holiday that means the end of the summer. It's not just the holiday that means the start of football season. Uh, it's not just the holiday that's like, man, this is a couple weeks into school and I get my first long weekend. It's not that, although those are great things. It's not the day that pools close, although that happens. It is a remembrance of the value of work. So tomorrow when you're grilling your hamburgers and someone asks you, where did this day come from? You can tell them the story and they'll think you're brilliant. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting, though, is, is not just then, but even now, there's a deep restlessness in our souls related to work. I found some amazing statistics about Americans and work. The average American spends 90,000 hours at work over their lifetime, 90,000 hours. So if you are a student, if you are a, a, a young person, you start going to kindergarten maybe when you're five, and you're going to school, uh, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day, nine months a year, until you're most likely, at least until you're 18. If you go to college until you're 22 or 23, depending on how many laps you take at the university. If you go to grad school, maybe even longer, a significant amount of your time is spent at school. And then when you finish school... Right, then you go into working, and we spend 90,000 hours of our life at work. Now, 87% of Americans, 87% say they have no passion for their jobs. That's not like, you know, 10% or 15%. That's like 9 out of 10 of us in this room would say, yeah, <laughs> my job, I, I just... I could care less. No passion for our jobs. Uh, 90% said of Americans said they would take a pay cut in order to have a job that had more meaning to it. They were looking for meaningful work, and we value that even more. At least we say we value that more even than what the job pays. Now, getting to and from these jobs that we spend so much time at that we do not care about, the average American spends more than 100 hours commuting to and from work each year. Wow, it's getting a little heavy <laughs> in here. Okay, uh, recently there was a book on the New York Times bestseller list for four years in a row. That's a long run, four years in a row, called uh, The Four-Hour Workweek. The four-hour work week, and in it, the author, uh, his subtitle was Escape the 9 to 5, Live Anywhere, and Join the New Rich. Right, that was the hook. And it was so popular, right, that it was on bestseller list for four years in a row. This idea of, man, if I could just get free from my work, or if I could just have meaning in my job, then it would radically change uh, my life. And so given that, given how much time we spend at work, given the overall unrest related to our jobs or dissatisfaction with our jobs, given that to, tomorrow is Labor Day, I thought it was fitting that we start a teaching series related to our faith and our work. And the idea of being how does, we've been studying the way of Jesus. We've been studying the person of Jesus. We've been studying his kingdom. 
And how does the way of Jesus, how does who he is, his message, his motives, his kingdom, how does that inform, how does that inspire, how does that move us in a place where most of us spend most of our lives? How do they connect together? How are they shaped by one another? How does our faith shape our work? And so over the coming weeks, I want to talk with you, month of September, I want to talk with you today. My topic is, how do I find meaningful work? Uh, Week two, I want to talk about, how do we escape the nine to five? We've read the four-hour work week. What is another way that we uh, can escape the nine to five? How do I find the work I'm meant for? How do I grow in my craft? How do I maximize my potential? And if you're a student, if you're in school, I want to speak to all these as they relate to school for you. How, do you. how do I find meaning at school? How do I escape the eight to three at school? How do I find the stuff that I'm meant for, right? We all have those questions. And we're going to be talking about those and seeing what Jesus has to say. My hope today is that as most of us, if you imagine this is our, our, our meaning bucket our meaning bucket for most of us related to work is empty. And we desperately long for and desire for meaningful work, something that will fill this bucket. And my hope today and my sole goal today is to fill your meaning bucket, whether you are a student, whether you are a, a, an employee somewhere, a business owner, uh, maybe you have non-paid work that you do, Right? It's not just paid work that we need to find meaning in, non-paid work. Maybe you are uh, retired, maybe you are a homemaker, and you're not getting a paycheck or something like that, but I believe that there is meaning for the work of our hands, and I want to fill your meaning bucket today. So with that, there are three ideas that I want to fill your meaning bucket with that we'll get to as we go. We are going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. So if you'll open your Bibles, Luke chapter 12, we're going to be in verse 13 through verse 21. And I'd encourage you to take out your Bible from the the seat underneath you or pull out your device. Parents, if you have your children in here, open up your Bibles and let's go through this together as a family, but let's be people that take in the Word of God. So this is actually a story that we looked at earlier in the summer. Jeremy did a wonderful job teaching on it. But I wanted to present to you a different view or a different aspect of this teaching of Jesus as it relates or as it applies to the work of our hands. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Do you think if I tried that with my kids that that would work? They might want to try it anyway. Um, So who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? He said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Again, Jeremy did a wonderful job teaching on that. Then Jesus goes in to give an example, and this is what I want to point to you. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you Have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What I want to ask you or what I want to make sure that you see is when Jesus gives this example of this man whose life we are to avoid. Jesus is saying he is a fool, and this is a foolish way to live. I want to ask you, where did the man go wrong? What was the man's sin in this story? And this is so important for us to see, because so many times we as Christians, we miss this. 
And we miss a vital part of filling our meaning bucket at work. The man, Jesus is pointing out, he did not go wrong in buying a field. He did not go wrong in having the foresight to buy a field that would produce good resources. He did not go wrong in planting the seed. He did not go wrong in harvesting the field and having a crop. In fact, when we look at the narrative of Scripture, as he's doing those things, he is doing the thing that God has given him to do. I'll talk next week about where he goes wrong in this story, but I want to make sure you see where he goes right. That he has taken himself and he's taken his resources and he's being fruitful and he's multiplying. And this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture related to the work of our hands. Scripture opens in Genesis chapter 1 with God creating, with God at work, with God building the universe. So our understanding of history starts with God at work. And whether you believe it all played out through uh, this um, literal creation or the Big Bang Theory or whatever, we could talk about that another time. But what I want you to see is that God was the one working. God was the one creating. God was the one designing and cultivating and ordering the world, the universe, and humanity. And when God creates mankind, he speaks to mankind and he says this, Genesis 1 28. It said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is the original charge to humanity. And it starts with, we're blessed by God. If you could throw me that yellow ball, Sparrow. Oh. Try it a little better. There you go. Okay, I've got a little yellow ball with a smiley face here. Because I want you to be happy. And this says, you matter to God. You matter to God. And the first place that we start filling up our meaning bucket as related to work is to understand that as people, we matter to God. God doesn't bless them after they've already done their work. They're not cogs in a machine that just get rewarded if they do the right thing. God blesses them before they work. God stamps value on them before they've even done anything. God's made them in his image. The one who is a creator has now created his own image bears, and he blesses them. So I want you to know today that you matter to God. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them you matter to God. I want you to turn to your other neighbor that you left out at first and tell them they matter to God. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about every person you're going to see at school this week. Think about every person you're going to see at your job this week. Think about every person that you're going to see in the grocery store or at the DMV or wherever you're going to be. And I want you to know in your mind, I want you to say, they matter to God. I want you to think about people that live in other countries that even worship other things, that live very differently. And I want you to say to yourself, they matter to God. I'm not hearing you. I want you to say, they matter to God. This is so important to change the way that we see life and to fill our meaning bucket as the way we work. Is that you matter to God. And you matter to God. And people matter to God. And because people matter to God, because God has placed his blessing on humanity, he gives them something of value, something of worth, something of purpose. He gives them work. Let's pull that verse back up there. He says to them, they're in a garden, and he says, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. That sounds like a job. That sounds like going to work. God is saying, I am blessing you and I'm commissioning you as I have been creating. You are going to create and to cultivate. Sure, God makes things out of nothing, 
but we're charged to take the resources that he has made, the potential that he's put on the planet, and to cultivate it, and to be fruitful, and not just a little bit, but to fill the earth. And to subdue it, to bring it to order and harmony that would fully reflect God's glory and goodness. So what does this look like? When a farmer takes the dirt of the ground and the resource of seeds, and he begins to cultivate or she begins to cultivate a crop that sustains many with life-giving nutrition, they are fulfilling this mission. They are being fruitful and multiplying. They're cultivating the raw resources of our planet. And they're subduing it. When a retired teacher takes a beginning teacher and begins to mentor them in the craft of teaching, they are taking the raw potential of the new teacher and they're cultivating the teacher and their gift to bless many for decades to come. They're fulfilling this mission. When a student takes simple shapes and learns that they stand for letters and that letters combine to form words and words combine to form sentences and sentences combine to form books and then they can read and they can learn things through that reading that will help them make a contribution to the world, you're fulfilling that mission. When a musician takes sound particles and arranges them in such a way that it makes a song that brings joy to people's hearts, They are fulfilling this mission. When a parent takes the growing mind and character of a child and cultivates their intellect and guides their character development so that the child has every opportunity to grow into their full potential, the parent is fulfilling this mission. When a computer programmer assembles and orders bits of code to write a new program that powers an industry and empowers businesses to do better work, the coder is fulfilling this mission. So I hope you begin to see this gift that was given to mankind, the gift of work. It was given not as a punishment, not as a burden, not as something to be avoided, but it's a deep calling, a deep purpose, a deep meaning that we have to enter into what God is doing in our world. So the second thing I want you to realize is if you'll throw me, I think it's the purple ball, toss it up here, thank you. This says, and if you're in school, I want you to see this. This says, your school matters to God. So you matter to God, and because you matter to God, God has placed you in school, and the work at school that you do of learning to read and learning to multiply and learning to to add and subtract and do long division and business problems all the way up to engineering, whatever place you are in school, your schoolwork this week matters to God. As you go to class this week and you're like, oh, I just wish it was still the weekend. I want you to remember you matter to God and you have a calling on your life and your schooling matters to God. You have purpose and that's the next step to seeing our meaning bucket filled to overflow this week through the way of Jesus. Okay, can I see the other ball? Oh, all right. This one, your work matters to God. Your work matters to God. This is a God-given assignment to humanity. It's something that he cares about, that he's invested in, that he wants to see happen. So I want you to turn to whoever's next to you, and if they're a student, I want you to say your school matters to God. And if they're a worker, whether it's paid or unpaid, I want you to say your work matters to God as well. So I'm going to leave this here to help you remember and help you carry this into this week. But I know many of us are asking the question, okay, that sounds good on Sunday, but why is school so boring? Why is work so hard? Do I have to do another grammar worksheet? Do I have to do another employee invoice or audit or whatever it may be? Why is work so boring at times? Why is it so stressful? Why is it so hard if it's this gift that God has given us? 
Shortly after God gives mankind the assignment to be fruitful and to multiply, mankind says, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll call the shots here. We'll be our own creators. We'll be our own kings. We'll decide what to do. Then make the choice to sin against God. And you can't understand the way of Jesus as it relates to work without understanding God's original intent and also understanding sin. And if you miss one or the other, you're going to miss your meaning bucket being filled for 90,000 hours of your life. When sin comes into the world, just like any choice, there are repercussions from our choices. Our choices have consequences, either good or bad. And what we see when sin comes into the world, it fractures humanity's relationship with God. It also fractures their relationship with one another. We read that God says that Adam and Eve are now going to have strife in their relationship because sin breaks down relationships. But that's not the only area that we see sin impacting. Look at Genesis chapter 3. The effects of sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. God's painting a picture of work becoming futile as the result of sin. Work becoming empty, work becoming boring, work becoming hard, work becoming stressful. Not because that was God's heart in the beginning related to work, but through sin, our hearts are changed and work becomes a burden. And so we long for, how do I get this burden off of me? And we think maybe it comes through finding a a new job. If I could just get to this position, then I would be happy. It doesn't work, thank you. Sometimes, I will grant it, we might need a new job or you might need a new school. But so often that's what we're, we're thinking. Or we think, man, if I could just read that four-hour work week book and, and I could pull that off and then I could escape the nine to five, then I would be happy. I have better news for you. I think coming back to the meaning and purpose that we're designed to find in work it is closer to us than we might realize. It's closer to us than we realize. Because what we see throughout Scripture is when people reconnect with God, when they reestablish that relationship with God, or maybe a better way to put it, they receive God's initiation to reestablish that relationship. Relationship with God gets healed. Relationships with one another get healed. And our relationship with work begin, we begin to find healing and restoration there as well. And I want to show you that because it's so important for us to see. Exodus chapter 31, this is the first place in the Bible where it says someone was filled with the Holy Spirit. First place in the Bible. When I think about people being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think about like the apostles going out to preach the gospel boldly with signs and with wonders and churches starting and people coming to Jesus and that's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And while that's true, the first place in Scripture that we see someone filled with the Holy Spirit, I think it's going to surprise you uh, if you don't know it already. Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, We have a lot of biblical names in our church. I'm waiting for someone to name their child Bezalel. (laughs) See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And listen, I have filled him with what? With the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. So this is the first person Bezalel is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He's filled with the Spirit of God, this relationship with God. There's a reconnect there. And God's Spirit begins to fill him. And the evidence of that, the overflow of that, the outworking of that, is that there's wisdom and understanding and knowledge with all kinds of skills. Look at verse 4. For what? To make artistic designs. For work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So get this. The first place in the Bible where someone is filled with the Holy Spirit Bezalel, he's filled with a spirit and empowered for arts and crafts. And you're like, wait, what? Uh, I, wow, you know? But listen, this is so important to see. This gifting that Bezalel has that comes out of his relationship with God, that comes out of the Holy Spirit's activity in his life, he's an artist. He's a creator. He's a designer. And because he's cultivated these skills over his lifetime, this text comes in the context of God designing the place of worship, designing his house for the nation that people were going to come to and were going to worship God at. And he said, this man has such skill in the area of arts, in the area of crafts, and I want my house to be filled with the things that he makes so that the world can see the beauty of God at work. Wow, this may cause us to rethink and refigure what it really looks like to walk with God, what it really looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's talents that you've been given. Maybe there's skills that you've been given, that you've worked on, even from a young age. Maybe you had experiences. There's like, man, I just look back over my life and I see these. And maybe you've devalued those skills or those talents. And maybe the Lord is showing to you today that those very things are things he has placed in your life as an outworking of his spirit within you that are meant to be a part of the work of your hands and meant to be a part of you building God's kingdom, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. That's Bezalel. But he's not the only one. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is talking about our salvation. And he's talking about the grace of God appearing in Jesus that while you and I were dead in our transgressions and sins, God, who was rich in mercy, sent Jesus for us to die on the cross that we could be freed from the power of sin. He's preaching the gospel. And then where does he go? He says, you are God's handiwork. Another way to translate that is you are God's poetry. You are God's craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he says, as an outworking of our relationship with God being reestablished, the power of sin being broken in our life, part of our calling, part of the outworking of that is good work that God has assigned you as his poetry, as his craftsmanship, as his Bezalel. But maybe your deal isn't arts or crafts, but maybe it's something else. But he's anointed you, and he has good work for you and me to do with the work of our hands. Sometimes we think that the only things that matter to God are our prayer, Bible study, tithing, mission trips, church attendance, all that stuff. All those things are good things. But what I hope you're seeing is that what matters to God is much larger than maybe we have given him credit for. Remember, your school matters to God. Your work matters to God. And you matter to God. So how has this been lived out? How have the people of Jesus I don't know, gone after this in any, in any way. Can you give me some examples? I'm a guy who learns through examples. So I want to tell you a few, a few stories. I had about 10. Uh, I cut them down just for the sake of time. But if you want to hear more, come tell me because I love these stories. First person is Handel. 
Now, you might be familiar with Handel from Handel's Messiah, which we play at Christmas. Uh, Many consider him to be the greatest composer of all time. The greatest musical composer of all time, Handel. And one of his assistants, one of the people who worked with him, described one day coming in to Handel in his private studio where he was practicing and where he was creating and where he was making these masterpieces. And he walks in and he finds Handel weeping at the piano. And Handel tells him, as I was playing this music, I beheld the very face of God. And God's beauty has shaped the music that's flowing out of me. Wow. Out of his relationship with God, there was anointing and power and calling on his life to take and rearrange sound particles to make something beautiful that's played all the world over. Next person is Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore. It's not just men that this is about. It's women as well. Hannah Moore in the 1800s lived in Britain, and she was a teacher. We have any teachers in the room? Two. Okay. All y'all are taking the day off because you got the whole long weekend. Teachers. So she's a teacher. And I don't know if you are a teacher, you've experienced this where you are trying to teach your, your students something, but you don't feel like you have the adequate resources or lesson plans or things to be able to do that, the materials. So she does what teachers do. She began to create, and she was trying to teach her students drama, plays, acting, theater, but she felt like all the plays that were available were, had poor morals. They had bad morals. They were teaching the kids bad things. So she's like, I need to give them something different that would point them in a positive direction. So she began to write her own plays for her students to do, something teachers have done uh, for hundreds of years, create their own lesson plans trying to help kids learn. Well, she discovers as she writes these plays that she has a gift of writing. She has this deep relationship with Jesus, and I meant to tell you this, her burden related to the morality of the plays came out of her relationship with Jesus. Because she wanted to be salt, and she wanted to be light in the classroom. And she wanted to lead her kids in a positive and godly direction. So she begins to write these plays and discovers a gift in the area of writing. So as a teacher, she begins to write other things and begins to be published in various places. And she gets connected with a man named William Wilberforce, who was fighting in Britain to bring about an end to the slave trade. And Wilberforce had been fighting in Parliament, he was a politician, had been fighting for many, many years, decades even, and could not get this legislation passed to bring an end to the slave trade. Well, Hannah Moore finds out about it. So she decides to take this gift that she has in the area of writing, and she decides to write a poem describing what it would have been like to be a slave taken from Africa. And she writes this poem, and it's published in the national paper and spread throughout the nation, and it goes viral. People began reading it, and because of her skill in writing, they were able to feel, the people of the nation were able to feel what it would have been like. And they said, this is wrong. This thing that they had been calling right, they declared it was wrong. And they rose up, and they were the ones that put pressure on parliament. And Wilberforce's law was passed. You know William Wilberforce, probably. What I bet you don't know is Hannah Moore, the teacher who loved Jesus and began to write to develop her kids. And then God used that to write a poem that changed the course of Western civilization. I love this one. If you've been around the church, you know I'm going to talk about this guy because I just think he's so awesome. George Washington Carver. Amazing man. I had other examples. I'm like, I got to go back to my buddy. If you don't know George Washington Carver, he lived in the American South. And he saw, it was in the age of sharecroppers, and he saw what the cotton industry had done. The overproduction of cotton had changed the market, changed the soil. And so there were sharecroppers that were just struggling to get by. And Carver was a scientist. He loved Jesus, and he loved science. And he was such a good science, uh, scientist that Thomas Alva Edison, the, the uh, light bulb guy, tried to hire him to come work for him for the equivalent salary of a million dollars a year. Wow, a good scientist, right? And, but he said, no, 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 
I have a calling from God. I'm supposed to help these sharecroppers develop alternate products that will give them a way to cultivate them and change the economic cycle of families and generations. So it said he would go into his workshop in the morning. He would roam through the woods even at four in the morning, calling out to God and saying, God, show me the secrets of the universe so that I might be able to to harvest them and bring them to people that their lives might be changed. And he said, God told him, you can't handle the secrets of the universe, but I will give you insight into the secret of the peanut. True story. And he developed invention after invention, product after product, based on the peanut, which could be grown and harvested in the soil conditions of the American South that people ended up making money on, building industries on, and getting out of generational poverty because this man went to his prayer closet with his love and gifting in the area of science, and he listened to the Holy Spirit, and God gave him insight that changed the nation. I tell you that because some of us say, well, man, if I was a poet, yeah, I would do something, you know, or if I was a musician like Handel, this man was working with peanuts. Like if you can meet God over peanuts, you can meet God in any line of work, wherever you are. Last one that I want to give you, Horst Schultz. I hope I said his name right. Uh, He is from Eastern Europe. He's still alive. Uh, my kids ask me, are there any of these people that are still alive? Here's one that's still alive. So he is the founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Arguably the best hotel in the world, right? Most famous, most prestigious. If you say, I'm going to stay at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, everyone's like, wow, you must be loaded, right? Very nice hotel. He started it. He has a deep love for Jesus. And so in the hotel industry, who are the people at the bottom of the food chain? It's the cleaners. It's the, the housekeepers. It's the toilet cleaners. It's the people doing the laundry. Those type of jobs, lowest positions, right? That's, that's work that not a lot of people are waking up dreaming about someday, could I be a toilet cleaner, right? So what he did, out of his faith, he said, I'm going to do the orientation for all the new hires that are doing the basic, lowest kind of entry point services of our hotel. And he brings them together, these people that you know probably just trying to get a job, just do something to take care of their family, and and he tells them this. He says, I want you to know that you did not choose the Ritz-Carlton, but we have chosen you. We've chosen you for a purpose. He said, you're not just someone that cleans toilets or someone that you know, changes the sheets or does laundry. You are a lady and you are a gentleman. And we here, we're ladies and gentlemen who are serving other ladies and gentlemen. And out of his faith, he began to instill a spirit of excellence because he knew that those people mattered. And as he began to speak out, you're chosen. Kind of echoes somewhere else in the Bible. Jesus, right? He speaks that out. He speaks out, you have identity, you have dignity, you're a lady, you're a gentleman, and we're going to serve ladies and gentlemen. So it builds this dignity into people. And then that's the over, their business is the overflow of the dignity and the honor with which they treat their employees who then begin to treat their patrons in that same way. Unbelievable. Hotel industry, the work of his hands being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. So as we close, I just want to send you into this week with a simple reminder. As we come to the way of Jesus and we look to him and we let him uh, receive his invitation to reestablish our relationship, what we find is that we matter to him. You matter to him. Your school this week matters to him. It matters to God. There's purpose in your school. And your work matters to God. The work that you go every day on the way, when you're driving your your commute, your 100 hours, I want you to remember that your work matters to God and that God has purpose in your work and there's a calling on your life. 
And that God is going to move through you as you let your meaning bucket be filled. With that, I want to invite you to stand. We are going to take uh, communion together as we close. When we take communion and we come forward and we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we remember Jesus' body broken for us, for us to have life, we remember his blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's through his initiation that the power of sin in our life can be broken. And as it applies today, that we can be reconnected with meaningful, purposeful work that we're made and designed to do. And so as the officiants come forward, they'll have the bread, they'll have the cup, the worship team uh, will lead us in song. And when you're ready, I want to invite you to come forward. You can take the elements, return to your seat, and then just prayerfully respond to the Lord. What is God speaking to you out of these words today? What is God encouraging you with? How does God want to speak into your everyday existence, your nine to five? I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. You are amazing. Thank you that we matter to you. Thank you that our school matters to you. Thank you that our work matters to you. And I pray that you would help us reconnect with your original intent in the area of work, that we'd reconnect with your heart for work and the calling that you've placed on our lives and the giftings you've given us, Lord. And you would allow us to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it for your glory and the flourishing of the planet. In Jesus' name, amen.
Yeah. 